Well, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be continuing uh, through our study in the Gospel of John this morning. And this morning, we're going to be tackling chapter 16. And to put chapter 16 in its proper context, this is really the end of, you remember back in chapter 12, that's when Jesus' public ministry ended. Uh, He'd been out teaching in the temple and in the streets. And chapter 12 really marks the point of transition where he turns away from addressing the crowds. And for a span of about four chapters, Jesus is going to be engaged in private conversation with his disciples before he is eventually betrayed and before he would go to the cross. And chapter 16 is, his, is the, the cap of that conversation. This is the last of Jesus' teaching ministry before he goes to the cross. And it's interesting when we look at it in terms of that, that this is Jesus's really closing remarks to his disciples. In chapter 17, he's going to spend that entire chapter in conversation with God the Father. Chapter 17 includes the high priestly prayer. And in chapter 18 is where he is arrested and betrayed. And then he goes to the cross, and then are the post-resurrection appearances. But chapter 16 is the end of his conversations with the disciples. And this chapter is bookended by two concerns that Jesus has for his disciples. And we see these concerns in the first verse and in the last verse. In the first verse of the chapter, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And in the last verse of the chapter, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And uh, I I think uh, Christian parents will recognize the heart of concern that Jesus is expressing for his disciples. God, what can we tell our children that will keep them from falling away? And in this trouble-filled world, so full of those terrifying, horrifying realities and all those ominous possibilities, what can we tell our children that will give them peace? Just as uh, maybe I've been thinking this way in a a more pronounced way, just because very selfishly, Sarah and I, of course, are expecting to bring another little tater tot into the world. And with every child I have, I feel as though I have made myself a bigger target. You know, my heart just grows. And I suddenly have this awful, sickening feeling that if that's where the enemy hit me, it would hurt. (laughs) You know, do what you will to me. Just leave my kids out of it. And with every child I've had, I feel like a bigger target. And what are my two biggest worries for my own children living as we do in the midst of this toxic soup of a fallen world? Well, my first fear is that they will be lured away and attracted to the things of the world, that they'll fall away from Christ. And the second thing is when I come, they no longer wake up crying in the middle of the night. I no longer go to their bedside. (laughs) But I can no longer say there's no monster under their bed either. The things that they worry about typically are real. This world is a horrifying place. 
I don't mean to be dark. I think my sermons recently have been kind of dark. And I was telling uh, Jennifer and Andrew here this week, I was like, man, I really want to preach a lighthearted sermon. (laughs) Uh, But every text we come to, either it's because of my bent or because of what the text is saying, it ends up being kind of dark. But Jesus here has this heart of concern for these disciples that I totally resonated with this week. He wants to tell them words that will keep them from falling away. And he wants to tell them words that will give them peace in the midst of a trouble-filled world. And I want those kind of words. I want to know what to say. And so maybe we can approach this text in this way. What does Jesus say to his disciples to keep them from falling away? And what does he say to them to give them peace in the midst of all of this trouble? Well, first, let's look at falling away. That's the first thing he begins with. Verse 1, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. The first thing to note and observe is that the sorts of things that Jesus tells his disciples to keep them from falling away is, at first, kind of surprising. Why? Well, because it reads more like a list of things you might bring up to scare a person away than to keep them from falling away. Remember, this is verse 1 of chapter 16. So when Jesus says, I have said all these things, he's referencing, referencing back to the words that came immediately before this at the end of chapter 15. And in those verses, verses 18 through 27, Jesus tells his disciples that the world will hate them, persecute them, and generally treat them the same way they treated Jesus. Jesus tells them, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. These verses are saying that being joined to Jesus and his church will, of necessity, mean separation from the world. And that separation will often find expression in just the sorts of things that Jesus is describing. And then in the verses that come immediately after verse 1, Jesus continues by telling them, that as a result, they will be put out of the synagogues and even that they will be killed. Now, so far in our study through the Gospel of John, we have on multiple occasions encountered so-called disciples. If you're listening at home or on the radio, I'm using air quotes. Disciples of Jesus who did fall away. We referenced them last week. Remember, Jesus was talking about how the vine dresser comes and takes his some, some branches away. And we were talking about how in John 6.66, where it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And of course, there is that most famous example of a disciple of Jesus falling away, being Judas, of course. And all these instances of so-called disciples falling away have something in common, don't they? which is that they had come to view following Jesus as a means to some this-worldly benefit. 
Or perhaps, if not exactly for some this-worldly benefit, they thought of Jesus as someone worth following if he brought them no additional this-worldly trouble. So all these disciples who fell away had fallen into the habit of following a Jesus who was not really the Jesus. And so when the real Jesus showed up, they were offended, disillusioned, and they fell away. And so I think one of the reasons why Jesus is telling the disciples this is because if he is to win them, he must win them truly. He must win them to an accurate picture of who he is. If he retains them as a disciple on the basis of anything less than the fullness of what it is to be a Jesus follower, they will eventually, like Judas, wake up and say, whoa, 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 this isn't what I signed up for, and they'll fall away. One of the things that often strikes me when I read the Bible is how different the recruitment strategy of Jesus in the early church was from what we see so often in Christian practice today. In what is arguably one of the most central and oft-quoted passages on Christian discipleship, Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus famously said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So whereas Jesus essentially said, come and die so that you can know life, it seems to me that the message of the church today more often says, come and know life so that you will never have to die. And the difference between these two approaches is significant. Uh, the first person I ever heard who said, articulated this idea was A.W. Tozer, but he said in a very beautiful way, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. And this is why Jesus told his disciples the things he did in order to keep them from falling away. It's not that saying, come and know life so that you will never have to die is untrue, so much as it is incomplete. Jesus' approach, come and die so that you might know life, calls people to a daily embrace of the rough cross of self-sacrificing love and obedience with a future reward in mind. But others present the gospel primarily as a way of avoiding suffering rather than a willing embrace of suffering. It's no surprise then that we see so many anemic, half-hearted, fair-weather friends in the church today. Any little thing comes along and they walk away as though it's not necessary. What does that mean? Well, it means that they've been following a Jesus but not the Jesus. Many church leaders today seem to advocate kind of a cheap consecration. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The way is hard. Those are the words of Jesus. In Luke 9, we read about a time when Jesus and his disciples were walking along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, in the first instance, the guy who said, I'll follow you wherever you go, this person wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't seem to yet understand the cost. He's sort of like taking a serious step lightly. In the other two instances, those guys seem to understand something of the cost that would come with following Jesus, but this makes them hesitant to do it. Well, I'll follow you if, I'll follow you when, I'll follow you when A, B, and C are in place. I'll follow you when and if the stars ever align into a perfect set of circumstances where I can step out in obedience. So the first guy says, I'll follow you wherever. The second two says, I'll follow you if, or I'll follow you when. And Jesus responds to both in a way that seems really strangely out of step with how most churches try to retain disciples these days. Jesus came to gain all-in followers, not half-hearted folks who keep one foot in the world and another in his kingdom. So Jesus' words designed, designed guys for the expressed purpose of guarding the disciples against following away, falling away were words that called them to a willing, knowing embrace of suffering and cross-bearing. We often hear Christian parents, I often say, I just did at the front end of this service, that what I want most for my children is Jesus. But how often do we pause and consider what that might mean for them? In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If it is truly my greatest desire as a parent that my child would embrace Jesus, then I must prepare myself and I must, I must prepare them for those times when this world will treat them as it treated Jesus and to desire that for them. Wishing Jesus for my children is no different than wishing trouble and persecution for them. Those are the words of Jesus. And again, my sermons are so chipper. <laughs> They're so upbeat, aren't they? Now this might all sound a bit overwrought to the ears of American Christians. Since the landing of the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock in 1620, until about the 1960s, Christianity was the dominant worldview in our culture. 
over three centuries worth of our cultural development occurred in a, in a milieu that was not only friendly to Christianity, it was aggressively pro-Christian. If you wanted to run for public office or if you wanted to be a successful business person, if you wanted to be the local dog catcher, it helped you to have your name on membership roles in a community church. Public law and policy was shaped by biblical views. It was all adopted through the lens of Scripture. And what that did over the span of more than three centuries was it lured the American church into this place that is totally foreign to the experience of most Christians in most cultures in most ages. We've really been tempted as a people to think of this world as our home. We're shocked, we're offended that the forces of evil would align themselves against the church in these days. It's a, it reminds me, honestly, of Rip Van Winkle. You remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? He goes up in the mountains. He sees Henry Hudson and his crew playing at nine pins. He drinks some of their mystery drink, and he falls asleep for a hundred years. He wakes up. I mean, he falls asleep as a subject of the British Empire, and he wakes up in America, the United States. There's a new flag flying above the tavern where he used to toast King George III or whatever king was there at that time. I don't know. I'm not a history person. <laughs> and I really think, to some extent, the American church has kind of fallen asleep a little bit and is just now waking up to the reality that this is a very different country. We're living in the midst of something that's radically different than when the church first fell asleep somewhere back in that 340-year span of time. And it's troubling. Uh, every year we see ominous developments in the culture. And we wonder, where is this all going? I'll tell you, the trajectory is not good. It is not good. And I think anybody, that is not a controversial statement. Our culture is no longer governed by a biblical worldview. Humanist, humanistic atheism is now the governing, and this is not something I'm making up. This is true by stats. That's the dominant worldview in our culture today. And really our view, the Christian view, is on a collision course with that. So what do I say? What do we say to our young people, especially when there are going to be some very intense pressure to separate them from their Lord? There will be some great forces at work telling them to fall away from what they believe to be true. What would Jesus tell them? And I think he tells the disciples right here that there will be suffering. This is part of it. This is what he tells them to keep them from falling away. Hebrews 10.32, the author of Hebrews says this to Christians who are suffering great sufferings for Christ. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. The author of Hebrews invites his readers to remember the former days. And this is good advice for us this morning too. 
American Christians who are waking from 350 years of prosperity and dominance in the culture need to go back and remember the former days when the church was born into a hostile world that crucified the Lord and martyred all but one of his apostles, and that because John somehow survived being boiled alive in oil. We need to go back and remember the former days when Christians were driven from town to town and when they were killed in the Colosseum before the cheers of the rest of the populace. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's many promises in Scripture that I love and cherish. That ain't one of them. But it is a promise nevertheless. And I think perhaps one of the reasons why it sounds so overwrought to me, why it is so foreign from my experience as a Christian is because, one, I've been living in the midst of a tremendously blessed people. Uh, really, the, the American church uh, has just enjoyed unbelievable freedoms. Uh, right now, uh, the, just past the Congress, is the Equality Act, which could be go before the Senate. And if passed, could significantly curtail re religious liberties in our country. That's something we should be very concerned about as engaged citizens, but also as followers of Jesus. We need to be praying for our leaders in Washington, but we also need to be talking in a very sober, realistic way that although it will be hard to be a Christian in the coming days, in the coming years, and it will become progressively harder, I believe, it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. One of the things that is so important to remember is that Jesus says words here to keep his disciples from following away, but very importantly, moms and dads especially, I charge you, pay attention to this, Jesus didn't say them in an empty way, he lived it. Uh, these are the twin pillars of our, our witness, is what we say in living in a way that agrees with it. This is critically important to see and understand that Jesus would model personally for the disciples that the path leading to joy and reward went through the cross. And that is what Jesus calls us to. In this life, there is the cross, but at the end of it is the crown. And the opposite of that is the temptation all Christians have, I think, to take our crown in this life and still expect a crown at the end. And that's not what Jesus would call us to. The crown is for those who embrace the, the willing embrace of suffering and cross-bearing in this life with the hoped-for reward of a crown at the end of it. So that's the, uh, that's the bad news. <laughs> that's the uh, typical Josh Tate sermon downer to begin with. But let's not forget that Jesus does end his sermon with this other statement. He says, I have some very sober words for you to keep you from falling away. I want you to know the print is in bold at the top of the contract what you are signing up for. If I am to win you as a disciple of mine, I must win you with what it will mean to be a disciple. But then at the end, he has this statement. 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace. (laughs) Oh God, give us peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These are Jesus' words designed to give his cross-clinging, embracing disciples peace in a world full of trouble. Look at verses 20 through 22 of chapter 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In John 14, 27, which is a related passage, I think, Jesus is quoted as saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm giving, I want to give you peace, but I can't give you peace as the world does? What did he mean by that? Well, just look at how the world offers peace. The peace that the world offers is built on ideal circumstances. If you could just get that thing, that pile of money, that person, if we could just get that candidate into office, if we could just get so many people who are sympathetic to our worldview on the Supreme Court, If we could just get all these things arranged just so, then we could rest and know peace. You see how seductive it is. This is the arithmetic we do all day, every day. How can I get to peace? How can I get things lined up so I could rest and know peace? And that is a seductive trap. Those ideal circumstances are an empty promise. They are an ever-retreating horizon that never arrives. They are like those disciples who said to Jesus, I will follow you if, I will follow you when. It is a circumstance-driven thing. But Christian peace is rooted in something other than our present circumstances. So it does not, it does not bob up and down like a cork with our fortunes of health or fortunes of financial standing, or our love life, or the waxings and wanings of the American socio-political scene. Our peace flows from the unshakable, unchanging, and immutable promises of Scripture. Isn't it true, fellow Christian, that what robs us of our peace in this world, what really makes us anxious, What causes stress and heartache and anxiety is what we do not have or what we fear we will lose. Isn't this true? 
And incidentally, I think um, Christians, I think, need to lose this really awful habit. I know I'm sounding very preachy, but I am kind of preaching, right? <laughs> here's, here's, a, here's an awful habit I think Christians need to lose. You know, whenever some development in the culture or there's some new law or some new stat or some new Supreme Court ruling which severely undermines Christian liberty or the peace and beauty of Christian truth in the public sphere in some way, we tend to say to one another, well, at least we're not in Egypt or at least we're not like Christians in China. And all that does really is marginalize genuine pain and worry among that's legitimate here, now. Just to use an example, in like pastoring 101, if you go to the hospital because someone has just lost a member of their family, you would never say, cheer up. I heard about somebody who lost their whole family. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But we say this to mourning American Christians who are losing significant things, who love their neighbors, who love their country, who love the freedoms that they enjoy. And with every step away from that, we tend to say, cheer up, I know know of another country that's in worse shape. I think we need to lose that habit. These things are worthy of mourning, are worthy of praying about, are worthy about being concerned about. And yes, we have greater freedoms than many other Christians. But we should not delegitimize the mourning that we feel as our culture continues to drift seemingly inexorably away from what was a good beginning in the truth. All right, I'll come down off my soapbox, but I'm going to climb right back up on another one. (laughs) So don't get excited. What really makes us anxious, what causes stress and heartache, is what we do not have or what we fear we will lose. We have empty hands and empty pockets, but our hearts are full of these unsatisfied desires. But as God retrains our desires away from this world and toward the coming day when we will enter into our reward, we become like soldiers whose hearts do not become entangled in the affairs of the country where they're stationed. Our peace is found in a yielded life and our grasping desires give way to contentment when we fix our affections on our heavenly home And we look for our reward there in that day and not here and now. As Christians look to Jesus and desire more and more of him, they find a wonderful peace. They do. As they bring him worries about a future cut short, he promises eternal life and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. How much stress and anxiety has existed in human beings down through the years because they knew the end was coming? That is a a reality common to all human beings. All human beings know that one day they will no longer live. And that causes tremendous stress and anxiety. Christianity has the answer. You can have peace about that. 
but you cannot have peace as the world gives it. Hey, what about when we're wronged, cheated, stolen from? How can we have peace in the midst of that? In Hebrews 10, it describes Christians who had their businesses seized by the government, and they cheerfully embraced that because they had a better and an abiding possession. Well, when we are wronged, cheated, and stolen from, God reminds us in his words that we have a better and lasting possession in Christ and that there is a treasure laid up where rust, moth, and thief cannot destroy or plunder. We bring him our loneliness and he reminds us that he will be with us always to the end of the age and he gives us traveling companions in the church. We bring him our wrecked bodies and he promises that we will be given new ones and that even this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. We bring him those who have wronged us and he reminds us that there is a coming day of justice and that vengeance belongs to him. We bring him our anxiety and he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. We bring to him our lack of money, and he reminds us of his words in Matthew 6, that if God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, will he not do the same for his own children? And as we, train, as we are trained to trust and to cling to Christ, remaining steadfast, we are brought to a more perfect maturity where we can say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Or in Philippians 3, he says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever is more, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is the only way to know the peace or to give my children the peace of what it will mean to be a Jesus follower in this world. It cannot be rooted in changed circumstances, but in a, in a hoped-for future anticipation, a great cosmic reversal where justice will, will exist, where rights will be wronged, where wronged will, um, wrongs will be righted. I'm not speaking well. You get the point. The day is coming when Jesus is coming back. And by faith, we believe that. By faith, we pin our hopes to that. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. But he also said, 2 Peter 5, 4, that when the chief shepherd comes, he will bring with him the crown of righteousness. And that is what we should hope for. And that is what can give us peace, even in the midst of these days of great trouble. Let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father,
when I think about these words of Jesus at the very end of his teaching ministry to his disciples, even as he's telling them that the future will involve a willing embrace of the cross for them too, he was even then looking ahead and anticipating his own embrace of a cross. Father, we call ourselves Christians, which means, of course, that we are sincere from the heart imitators of our Lord. And our Lord was a man who endured great trouble in order to do what would glorify the Father. And in order to bring salvation, in order to bring a lasting peace, Father, how can we talk about peace without thinking about those wonderful words that the angels sang over Bethlehem when Jesus was born? And on earth, peace among those on whom his favor rests. Father, we know that because of the gospel, we have been justified, put at peace with you. That's the words of Romans 5.1. And we remember your words from Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We who were bitter enemies, separated from you. God, you established a peace with us through the cross. And you have called us to be to a, to a lasting peace. Father, these are hard words this morning. Uh, this is not the sermon I wanted to preach. But God, I, I believe that these words are the ones that are needed. Father, I pray that my brothers and sisters here at State Road and I pray for my six children. I pray for many others whom I love that they would not fall away. Father, the seed that fell on the four soils, two of those seeds sprang up. They had something there, the beginnings of something that looked like faith that was ultimately proven to be shallow and choked out. And Father, I pray, Lord, that what you win us with would be what you win us to. Father, call us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to come and die that we might know life. And God, I pray that in the years ahead, as it says in Colossians 1, that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might, that your people here at State Road might have great endurance and patience as we follow you into whatever. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.